Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our Christmas series, The Hope of the Ages, today with a message titled, Christ the Better Moses. So turn to your Bibles to Exodus through to Deuteronomy as we join Dr. Newfeld now. The First Testament contains three major players around whom everything else revolves. First is Abraham, second is Moses, third is David. God gave a covenant to each of these men, and the covenant that he gave continues to be a promise for every generation of believers until the second coming. And so to suggest that Jesus is greater than Moses, at least to first century Jews, or even to contemporary religious Jews today, well, that's at least to them quite a stretch. Moses established the covenant of God at Mount Sinai, the law that would govern Israel's relationship to God, and also established for them the very definition of righteousness. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and those books are the basis for the entire Bible. And yet Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3 insists, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has, more honor than the house itself. That is, Moses might be the house, but Jesus is the one that built it. And that's saying quite a lot. And we're going to have to understand that today. My hope at this Christmas season is to showcase the glory of Jesus. That especially at this time of year, we reflect on his greatness, his excellencies, his magnificence. I want to simply revel in him and enjoy every thought of him. And so let's try to understand Jesus and Moses. There's an immediate similarity that relates quite well to Christmas. Both Moses and Jesus were hunted at birth. In the case of Moses, Pharaoh had given an order to cull the Israelite slaves. And so for a period of time, simply kill all male boys among them. But as Exodus 2 verse 2 tells us, when his mother saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. And then as he was growing at the age of three months, they saw that they couldn't keep his presence a secret. So they made a basket of bulrushes and sealed it with bitumen and pitch and put him in it and sailed him in faith down the Nile where he was picked up by Pharaoh's daughter. And it was she that saved his life. In the case of Jesus, it was Herod the Great who sought to kill him by killing all the boys of Bethlehem. In his case, his parents, having been warned by an angel of what was to come, took him and fled south, going down to Egypt where there was a sizable Jewish community and where they could fit in and would not be identified as anything different. But in both cases were to realize that what hung in the balance was the plan of God. In the end, their lives were preserved for God protected them. And perhaps that's the point we're to consider. Both babies, Moses and Jesus, had a holy destiny. But it is how they got to that realization that truly marks them as different. In the case of Moses, well, he was raised in the household of Pharaoh as nobility. And as such, he would have been educated as any of the nobility was. You know, years ago when touring the ancient temples of the Nile, I remember sitting at the very place where the royal boys would have been educated, and I thought about Moses sitting in that very place. I looked around me at all the pagan religious symbols there and wondered how he could have gone through all of that and come out as one who gladly identified with the mistreated people of God rather than enjoy the riches of Egypt. It was for me quite a thing to consider. But there's something else in Moses' life that plays a vital role. 
The book of Exodus tells us that Moses' older sister had been watching where the basket of the little Moses would go when it came to the bank of the royal palace. And with an act of incredible courage, she approached Pharaoh's daughter and asked, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And it must have been in the humble way that she asked that found favor with Pharaoh's daughter, but she said, Go, find someone. And of course, she found Moses' mother. In all those early years, the mother of Moses must have poured out into Moses the account of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob and of Joseph, who had been second only to Pharaoh. And he must have heard of the Abrahamic covenant. I imagine Moses torn between the two stories. On the one hand, the story of Abraham, and the other hand, the story of Egypt. You know, in Jesus' case, there was no such drama. After returning from Egypt, he was raised by his mother and father as an observant Jew. He was raised frequently attending the local synagogue. His parents would also have journeyed to Jerusalem on the high feast days. Luke tells us that they went up every year to celebrate Passover. We do have the very famous incident when Jesus was 12, that his parents, thinking that he was on the way home with the rest of the people, searched to find him and eventually went back to Jerusalem and found him in the temple, sitting among the Jewish teachers and asking them questions. And it was at that time that he said, I must be in my father's house. So it seems clear then that at 12, he's fully aware that he is the son of God and that teaching would be central to his ministry and that his first priority was to submit to and to do the will of his father in heaven. Well, Moses at 12 was not yet aware of his calling. But some time later, when Moses was already a young man, the book of Exodus says that he went out, and the text says he went out to look to his people. There's no doubt in reading that text that Moses still considers Israel to be his people. That idea had remained with him since childhood. And by the way, all the movies that have been made that suggest, you know, that he's suddenly shocked to find out that he's a Hebrew, it's simply untrue. He always knew. But on this occasion, his heart is overwhelmed because of their burdens. These are his people. And then he observes an Egyptian beating one of his people. And it's at this moment that he decides to make a stand. These are his people. And then he strikes down the Egyptian. And he eventually flees for his life, going to the land of Midian. And it's there that he arrives at Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he sees the burning bush. There he encounters God. And it's there that he finally hears his call. He's to bring Israel up from the land of Egypt, lead them to a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. He's to be the great deliverer of Israel. So consider that moment, would you? You see, you might think of it as the beginning of his ministry. He will come out of the wilderness and be introduced as Israel's liberator, their savior. So what does the man do? He tells God all the reasons why it won't work. He says, I don't even know your name, God. Why should Israel believe me? And God gives him two miracles he can perform, and they'll believe you then. But then Moses still doesn't want to go. He tells God, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech. I'm a bad spokesman. And God says, I'll provide Aaron, your brother, who will speak for you. And then finally Moses says, please send someone else. And at that moment, Moses faces the anger of God, and he finally relinquishes. See, how different is the story of Jesus? having withstood the temptation to run from his calling in the wilderness. He now appears without hesitation, preaching the kingdom of God. Repent and believe the good news. Now it's at this point, the ministry of Moses and of Jesus, we do see similarities. 
Moses performs a series of miracles to devastate Egypt and liberate the people. Now, Jesus also does many miracles, but his miracles don't devastate human beings, but it frees them. He opens the eyes of the blind. He causes people who are lame to walk. He touches the ears of the deaf and they hear. And whereas Moses' last miracle in Egypt caused the death of all the firstborn in the land, Jesus, unlike Moses, was able to raise the dead. And he did so on three separate occasions. But at this point, I want to show six contrasts between Jesus and Moses. Let's see all six. First, it was Moses who instituted the Passover. And if you don't know the meaning of Passover, it's the annual celebration in Israel, begun during the time of Moses, and it continues to this day. But Jesus has taken the Passover and he's transformed it into what we now call the Lord's Supper, celebrated by men and women from every race and tribe and tongue on earth. So let's contrast those two celebrations. Passover was the celebration of Israel's deliverance from death. The angel of death passed over all those houses that had the blood of the lamb applied to it. But the Lord's Supper is also a celebration of deliverance, but this one, the deliverance from the bondage of sin and death. The Passover marked the beginning of the new year for Israel. But in Christ, the eating of the Lord's Supper is the celebration that all things are now made new in Christ. See, the Passover demanded a male lamb, a year old, to be sacrificed. That was very important, that the priest inspect it, that it was without any defect at all. But Christ is the Passover lamb, and he was inspected by evil men, by Pilate, by Herod, by Annas and Caiaphas. And as Matthew 26, 57 says, they could find no fault in him. That's why 1 Peter 1, 19 calls him the lamb without blemish or defect. See, more than that, Jesus said that his body is the Passover bread and his blood is the Passover lamb. And Romans 5, 9 says, Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. See, Moses' Passover saved from the bonds of slavery. Jesus' Passover saved from the eternal anger of a righteous and incensed God. That's why when we eat the Lord's table, we eat in remembrance of a greater Passover. Christ, our Passover lamb. By the time you hear this, Christmas excitement has already begun to fill the air. Our Yuletide expectations are seeded by childhood memories, media hype, vendor advertising, and church traditions. We forecast Christmas with such heightened hopes that can often disappoint Christmas morning. Well, this month, Dr. John shares a new Christmas series called The Hope of the Ages, presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of God's intent. Jesus, the fulfillment of our Christmas aspirations, the hope of the ages. It's a message that must be shared year-round, and your partnership makes that possible. Thanks for all you do. And please continue to stand with us as we strive toward our year-end goal of $490,000 by December 31st. Just call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to make your gift today. Let's move on to the next point of comparison between Jesus and Moses. If Moses is known for anything, it's this. He's the great lawgiver. When Jews today speak of the Torah, they're referring to the law of Moses. Of course, it was not Moses who gave the law. It was God who gave it. 
But Moses is the one chosen by God to be God's prophet. And not just a prophet, but perhaps the most remarkable prophet in history. Exodus 33 verse 11 says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Indeed, much is made of this. Numbers 12, 6 to 8 tells us of a time when Moses was under attack by opposition in Israel. And so God speaks to those who would oppose his servant. And our passage says, And he that is God said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? See, that's significant. Among all the people of God, Moses' relationship to the one true God is unique. Indeed, at the death of Moses, the Bible gives us quite an assessment of this amazing man. It's Deuteronomy 34, 10 to 11, which says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel, like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. You know, it's for that reason that Moses was in the unique position of giving the law of God that would be on the basis of the one true faith. But even the great Moses was cognizant of the fact that there was something he didn't accomplish. See, in spite of all of his accomplishments, Moses realized, and and that at the end of his life, that the law had been given, and yet the hearts of the people remained hard. And so he gives a promise, Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. You know, for just a moment, let's consider the law that Moses revealed to Israel. Psalm 19, 7 to 8 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, so on. The law of God is all of these things given to us by a man who walked with God unlike any other man. And yet Jesus is far superior to Moses. See, first of all, it's not just that Jesus talked with God face to face. John 1 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is to say, not only did the Son communicate with the Father, but the Son, Jesus, shares in all the attributes of the Father. Even so, while Moses is a friend of God, Jesus is the Son of God. He is, as John teaches us, eternally begotten of the Father. Jesus is the eternal God, come forth from the eternal God. He is light coming forth from light, sharing fully in the essence of the Father. He is, as John 1.14 tells us, the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. It was Moses who gave God's people a tabernacle over which the glory of the God of Israel manifested himself. But Jesus is the tabernacle come to us in human flesh. And for that reason, John 1, 70 to 18 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. Yes, Moses gave a perfect law, but the law he gave ultimately was the source of condemnation for Israel. Whether it was the generation that came out of Egypt and were condemned to die in the wilderness because of their breaking of the law, or whether it was the time of the kings of Israel and their wanton disregard for the law, resulting in the Babylonian captivity, the law never transformed the heart. It revealed the righteousness of God, to be sure, but it also revealed the depravity of the heart. And so, by law, no one will be saved from the greatest slavery that has ever existed, slavery to sin, slavery to flesh, and be held a slave awaiting the rightful judgment of God. See, we needed a law, for without it, we would never have known the true God and the true nature of the human race. But the law never saved. We need grace, and this is why the Deliverer, Jesus, was born, something that Moses could not offer. Oh my, there's so much to say. I said that Moses instituted the Passover, that he was the great lawgiver who saw God face to face, and yet in both of these instances, Jesus is infinitely greater than Moses. Third, Moses is also known as the man who fed two million people with manna for 40 years. You might remember John 6. Jesus has just fed a crowd of 5,000 with five barley loaves and two fish, and that was an outstanding miracle. And many said, you know, this must be the prophet Moses talked about, the man who would be like him. But eventually they think it over and they say, look, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness for 40 years. You'll have to do a lot more than what you've just done to convince us that you're as great as Moses. And to which we read John 6, 32 to 35. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, Jesus is saying 40 years of supernatural bread isn't really that much. For the day it stops, you don't stop being hungry every single day. And then Jesus said, look, I'm not comparing myself with Moses, but rather with the manna that God the Father gave. I am the ultimate bread. Eat of me, you'll live eternally. You'll be satisfied with eternal life, which only I can give. Moses gave none of that. Jesus, greater than Moses at the Passover, greater at the giving of the law, greater than the daily miracle of manna, but also greater in terms of his moral character. See, Moses was the great lawgiver who ends up also being a lawbreaker. That's the problem with even the greatest ones among us. Numbers chapter 20 tells of a desperate time. The people are in the desert, two million of them, and there's no water. Tempers become heated. People ended up in violent quarrel with Moses. You brought us to the wilderness to die, they say. And it surely looked that way at that point in time. And in desperation, Moses and Aaron enter into the entrance of the tabernacle and they fall on their faces before God. God gives them a command. When God commands, it's the law. Moses is to take his staff, assemble all the people, and then speak to the rock before their eyes and water will spring forth and there'll be enough for two million to drink. That was God's graciousness. But Moses is still steaming with anger at all the charges that have been brought against him. And then instead of doing it God's way, he says, now listen up, you rotten rebels. What do I have to do? You want me to bring water out of this rock? And then taking his staff, he strikes the rock two times, almost like a magician. 
Water then comes gushing out. Now God speaks with Moses. You didn't believe in me, says God. You didn't uphold my holiness before the people. And so this day, I make a decree. You will not lead these people into the promised land, but you will die here along with your generation in this wilderness. Indeed, as the day of Moses' death arrived, God took him to the top of a mountain, showed him the promised land in a remarkable vision. But Moses himself was to die on the far side of the Jordan River. Hebrews 4.15 says of Jesus, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And 1 John 3 verse 5 says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And in 1 Peter 1 verse 18 and 19, we are reminded that Jesus is the unblemished and spotless Lamb of God. Such things could never be said of Moses. Indeed, in a time far more trying than Moses could have imagined, far more so than the incident described in Numbers 20. The spotless lamb was mocked and slandered, and then being nailed to the cross, he prayed for the soldiers who were doing their duty. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I have not wanted to portray Moses in any other way short of who he was. But all that Moses did was done by Jesus, who is so much superior to Moses as the builder of the house is to the house. I end with the words of Jesus said to the religious leaders, John 5, 45 to 47. Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Thanks so much, John. John, why is it so important to understand the significance of the law and how it helps us understand God's grace? Well, the law is a declaration of God's righteousness. I think we need to start there. I mean, we don't really understand what sin is without understanding that sin is law-breaking. Understand the law and you have an objective way of measuring whether or not you are a sinner. But it always leaves us dissatisfied because it doesn't save us. It just condemns us. And that's why the message of Jesus is so much greater, because he has come to do what the law is unable to do. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our Christmas series, The Hope of the Ages, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. The Advent season is a special time of year, but it can get lost in the bright lights of the Christmas season. This month, join Dr. John Newfeld and special musical guest Brian Dirksen, the Arias, and the Pilkey sisters as they walk us through the weeks of Advent, preparing our hearts for the celebration of Jesus' birth with an Advent celebration video series. Preparation takes practice, readiness, waiting, and allowing God to go beyond our expectations to fulfill His purpose for our lives. An Advent celebration can be viewed online at backtothebible.ca or on our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. And together, let's pray for opportunities to be a messenger of joy in challenging days. Share the good news to those in need of renewed hope. To know more about Back to the Bible Canada's Christmas campaign, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.